Hello, everyone, and welcome again to the next episode of Smarter Change, provided by Hassan Archer Consulting. I'm your host, Hassan Archer. Each session, we dive into an interview with senior leaders to understand how they have led meaningful change inside their clients, companies, and organizations. I believe lasting change within companies requires everyone to continually assess and evaluate how they get things done in a changing world. Today, I'm excited to speak with our guest, John Montague. John often refers to himself as a recovering Microsoft employee. We'll have to ask him more about that today. But he has over 20 years in leadership positions running sales and marketing at two public companies and five private ones. He has also participated in five startups, three of his own. I'm super excited to have this conversation today. And so let's just start off today by saying, John, welcome to the show. Hassan, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to have you. So John, let's give our audience a little background on yourself. Just who is John Montague? Oh man, that's a loaded question. Um, I'm just a guy. Uh, I've, I've had the fortunate pleasure to participate in a lot of different companies and a lot of different roles. Um, I've got 20 plus years in sales and marketing. I've done a little bit of everything from large companies such as Microsoft to small startups like my, one of my own, Novus RX. Um, I guess what I'd like to, I, you know, during that time, I jokingly tell people I've made every mistake you can possibly make. So please call me so that I can share with you my mistakes so that you don't have to make them again. But I've learned from all those mistakes. And, and I mean, I've made some doozies, you know, in, at, I, at Novus RX, we bootstrapped it. We funded it ourselves. Right when the iPad probably could have got funding very easily, we probably should have. But I had, venture capital has changed a lot over the years. And it was in a big change right then. And when I was coming up, I'd seen a lot of what I finally refer to as vulture capital, where people got their companies taken away from us or taken away from the, uh, the founders. They you know, wanted to bring in the professional management. Since then, thank goodness, uh, companies like Andreessen and Horowitz and others have decided to say, well, rather than push out the founders, let's just teach them how to be CEOs. And I think that's a much better approach. And we probably should have availed ourselves of that because one of the things that we didn't do and that, that hurt our company, the relationships that come along with some of that venture capital, the Rolodex in particular, can mm. be tremendously beneficial to a startup. And when the failure rate for startups today is still nine out of 10, um, that's something to, to strongly consider as you're going out. So I have many other stories to share though. I look forward to hearing them today. So one thing I wanna ask you about just from what you said, is uh, make the mistakes. And I like the fact that you own that. And I feel like today, in a lot of businesses, for a lot of people's careers, they have this idea that they should never make a mistake. And that you need to be perfect out the gate and have all the answers. But you know, what's your thought on that? How do, you, how do you save space for, it's okay to make a mistake, but then also we need to have a high degree of professionalism and performance and results as a business person? You know, it's interesting that you say that because I don't think enough people admit their mistakes. You know, everybody, especially in this day and age, you know, I meet so many people who are much better known than you or I, and you and I just stumbled into each other at an event in Southern California and just kind of hit it off because I think we look at things similarly, especially things like this. Mistakes are part of life. And there's, there are a lot of people who don't ever want to admit that they've ever made a mistake. Um, 
but then you'll continue to make them. And the only way that you attain wisdom, I believe, is by making mistakes and learning from them. And the key part, obviously, is the second piece, learning from them. So, for example, my, uh, my, there's, a, there's a gentleman out there, by I, I guess I will keep him nameless, but he'd probably enjoy the story. Uh, when I first became a manager, I sucked. I mean, I don't mean I was not good. I mean, I sucked. <laughs> Uh, the, the company was Ashton Tate and I got, I was a, a star sales guy and I got promoted to this position where I had some folks working for me and I tried to manage them the way I was successful. Huge mistake. Huge. Um, I probably made his life miserable. Um, I'm sure he's forgiven me since then, but, but some of the biggest mistakes I see people, successful people when they first manage is they try and make the person do what they did to become successful especially in sales. And this is why I think a lot of sales leaders fail. There's two things you should do is one, not manage them like you manage yourself. And the second thing you should do is shut up and listen. Because so much of sales is talking that we don't listen. And when you're a manager, the most important thing you can do is listen and watch and learn and then try and nudge, you know, try and coach, try and get people pointed in the right direction. But don't try and do it for them. Try to unlock what motivates them to get them where you need to be. And that's, that's the definition of, of leadership and management and good management. Um, but admitting your mistakes and learning from them, I think, is, is the first step towards that or really any other success. And in this day of personal branding, which I'm still getting used to and I find a, still a bit unseemly, um, you know, Yes, you know, we all want to be well-known. We all want to be respected. But I find the best way to do that is to be yourself. And by being myself, you know, I've made lots of mistakes. And I freely admit them um, because that's how I learn from them. If you're afraid of your mistakes, that's going to cause you problems. If you're afraid of poking fun at yourself, you know, we've all worked for a leader who you cannot make fun of them. Uh, in fact, the, I recently worked for a guy who's, who's got serious issues. He had this thing where he kept telling me that somebody XYZ employee disrespected him. What I came mm -hmm. to learn was that meant that whenever somebody disagreed with them, he considered that disrespecting them. I mean, classic narcissism. I mean, that's nuts. Um, yeah. And, and he, you know, he, he will never see that he's built a culture that can only be described as the beatings will stop when morale improves. <laughs> <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and, and I know that sounds funny, yeah. but I mean, I've, I've seen it and it was like that. And where that company has some very bright people, the vast majority, they come in, everybody looks like they're working and they're doing exactly what they need to do to take a paycheck. And that will, that unfortunately is a lot of companies. And that's not what you want, especially in technology. You know, the funny thing about our business, the software business, or really any business that requires a lot of intellectual capital, the most important assets go home every night. Mm -hmm. And I've always said that let's give them a really good reason to come back tomorrow and do their best work. I love that. And it's, you know, that's how you really overcome obstacles. That's why startups are so exciting. They're they're also chaotic, by the way. So for anybody who's never done a startup, don't think it's all, all uh, uh, Mai Tais and Yahtzee. I mean, yeah. it's a lot of craziness <laughs> and a lot of nuts. You'll see some bizarre behavior. But if you get everybody rowing the boat in the right direction, 
you can really do some great things. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned the first thing you said was um, when you have a leader who wants to, it's almost like make a carbon copy of themselves and they see management as here's my path. Here's why I was successful. Therefore you need to follow in my footsteps. And what I end up seeing with that a lot of times is it creates a culture of toxicity because now there's one right path. And so if you're not on that straight and narrow and you're not putting your feet directly into the holes where the founder went ahead of you, you get ostracized, right? And you're punished, which doesn't leave room to value your assets, like you said, which are the people who go home. And then they may not want to come back because they have strengths, they have weaknesses, just like all of us, all of us do in leadership. But if we're not taking advantage of what they do well, because we're saying, no, 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 these three things matter, those other 10 things don't, they're not going to come back. Your company is going to you know, pay a bunch of money, especially in software, for expensive people, and you're not going to take advantage of what they have to offer you as a company. And that's, that, that is a, a serious problem with management that I've seen you know, throughout my career. Well, it, it is, and I think it's unfortunately more widespread than any of us would like to admit. Um, I've always been a bit outspoken, and this is, this is one reason I'm a recovering Microsoft employee. Um, when I was at Microsoft, uh, they didn't appreciate that. You know, they, you, they really wanted you to march kind of lockstep. Um, there was a little click. If you were in the click, you got more stock options, and you got this, and you got that, and you could go on your merry way. But if you were outside the click, it was a different game. And I was in the Orange County sales office. There's some great people I worked with there, but there was a click and, and I wasn't in it and I was never going to be in it because people asked me what I thought and I would tell them that's me. You know, this has not been good for my career by the way, Yeah. but that's just who I am. Um, and it, it has hurt me a, a perfect example. Um, when, when I was at platinum software, now Epicor, um, I was, uh, I was either senior manager or director, but I started getting guest invited to the executive team meetings. And I, that was exciting. I mean, it was a huge career move. I was excited. You know, I'd be in there and, you know, I'm with the big shots. And every once in a while, somebody would ask me my opinion. Um, and unfortunately, I would give it. And usually that was really good for me. You know, I was well thought of. I was a pretty bright guy. You know, usually had some good ideas. But I will tell you one time when the CEO said, you know, we, we, I went to join that company right from Microsoft. One of the founders recruited me and they were one of my customers and they, they had, they were my first turnaround. I mean, they had an accounting scandal. Their stock went from 33 to three. Um, mm. They whacked the CEO. They had a lot of change, a lot of turmoil. I went there after that because I thought it would be an exciting time to learn. And it was, but let me tell you, it was not for the faint of heart. You know, yeah. we had to take out about 300 to 400 employees. Um, we had round after round of layoff. And one of these times the CEO said, well, we're going to have another 10% cut across the board. And I raised my hand and I said, why the hell are we going to do that? And the whole room got quiet. And I just made the point that, listen, we, we all have our lifeboat. And if you're a manager, I, I would suggest and I would hope that you always have a lifeboat. And the lifeboat is, if I had to cut, who would go? If I got to cut one, two, three, or four, and it's, it's not the fun part of managing, but it's part of managing. You know, mm -hmm. you have to really look at it. And if you've ever run your own business, this is how you survive because businesses live or die by cash flow. And sometimes some people have to go away. 
I've had to let a lot of people go. I've always tried to do it with dignity, look them in the eye and tell them exactly why, and that it's not their fault. It's our fault. You know, the business screwed up. Um, it's a terribly difficult thing to do, but you should do it that way. I brought that up in that executive meeting that a 10% across the board cut is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. We all know who the dead weight is. You should hold us accountable as managers to get rid of some of that dead weight. You know, and, mm -hmm. and if we have to cut into the healthy flesh, so be it. But let's do it smart. Let's not just across the board is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And, and they still do that today. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, uh, I guess the best, the best example out recently who I really admire is Brian Chesky of Airbnb. Mm -hmm. um, you know, recently with COVID, their business tanked. And this young man who's never been a CEO before um, stepped up and took out 25% of his workforce. But he did it with so much integrity that I'm sure a lot of people still will hate him and say bad things about him. But as an outside observer, I don't think you could do it better. He gave them an, ex he did it early enough so he could give extraordinarily generous benefits. I think the minimum was 14 weeks pay, something along those lines. It was very, very significant. Um, created an outplacement uh, form for them to provide services, true outplacement services, not the kind of token, oh, go see XYZ Corp and maybe they'll help you, but yeah. was proactive about it. And in, in this day and age, especially where, you know, yes, everybody says it's a rotten job market, but there's a lot of talent out there. And when you start to build a reputation of taking care of people, the good talent will come and flock to you. If you do it with looking them in the eye, treating them with respect, treating them with integrity. I have fired people that, you know, only one of them has actually thanked me later, but it usually is not a bad thing for them. They'll go on to do something better elsewhere. Um, it's when you start to get subversive about it and sneaky and, you know, it's not a fun thing to do, but the hard things in life never are. So, you know, as the old saying goes, suck it up, buttercup. You know, this is why you get paid the dollars. Do it, do it with respect, do it with honor, do it with integrity and do it quickly and then move on. And if you ever do have to do a cut, my, you know, my advice is always try to do it once. So cut deeper than you think you have to, because there's nothing worse than the death by a thousand cuts, because that's where you start to lose the good people, because they're going to say, well, I don't want to be next. I, you know, I better go get a job now. And, and at Platinum in particular, the way that I did that among my team, which is about 27 strong, every day I would have a meeting. What's the rumor? Let me hear it right now. I will confirm it or deny it and tell you why. And then we're going to go back to business. Because the other thing that happens is that water cooler chatter can kill you. It'll kill productivity. Yes. So in times like this, in times like COVID, it's all the more important to be very upfront with your employee base. Do it with integrity. Do it with honor. They will respect you. They will consider you a leader. They will walk through walls for you if they have to, as long as you're honest and upfront with them. It's the BS that everybody can smell a mile away. Yep. And I think a lot of leaders don't give their people enough credit for that. And I've sat through these meetings on both sides of the layoffs. And the idea that leadership will give a speech and say, unfortunately, we have to let go of a group of people today, but don't worry, trust us, we've got this, we're good. And the leadership goes off in their office and they you know, pat each other's backs and say, this is amazing, we did a great job, I think we're gonna be good, I think they bought it. And then all the employees are at their desks and say, okay, well, we're gonna mourn the fact that Johnny and Kathy left, and meanwhile, 
you know, how's your resume looking? Because I'm not sure these guys, you know, gave us the real deal. And then to your point about a thousand cuts, the next time you come back and do a layoff, a wave of layoffs, all those employees are saying, well, I have now no confidence in leadership because they promised me that we had a plan. And obviously there's no plan because things are getting worse. So now you have a bunch of people who are half in and half out who are probably spending most of their time taking recruiting phone calls at their desks or in their cars, and you've now lost control of your business. While you at the top may think you have control, actually you don't have control. And that's when you start to see the, the, the ugly side. And this is something you and I talked about briefly before we got on this call to, or on this meeting today, which was you know, the idea of taking a log and turning it over, which I give credit to that, to, to Kerry Ransom, he'd post that today on LinkedIn, but you turn the log over and then you see all the rot and the, you know, the insects and the stuff that's really going on. And a lot of leaders, a lot of managers miss that because they think, oh, they totally bought it. Everyone smiled and clapped and we had a nice town hall meeting, but that's not management. That's not leadership. No, it's not. I mean, leadership is about being vulnerable. You know, good leadership is about being vulnerable. Good management is about being vulnerable. I mean, you know, there's, I, I've, I worked for a guy not long ago that literally wanted to know nothing about his employees. And it, it, it showed, I mean, there, there was a woman that he'd hired uh, and, and she was very smart, very sweet, very productive. Um, she's, you know, she was the gal that sat at the front desk and it was a position, but didn't really leverage her is he'd called still to this day calls her by the wrong name and i'd been calling her by the wrong name because that's what i heard him call her and then i heard from another employee after i'd been there for over a month calling this woman the wrong name and i went up to her i said why didn't you tell me she goes ah you know it's no big deal i don't really care i said well i care i care yeah. you know i said it makes me feel like an idiot calling you the wrong name um but the the owner just he to him, it doesn't matter. He didn't want to know anything about, you know, just if they're, if your kid's sick, if you're having a problem, I'm sorry, that's management and that's leadership. I mean, the number of times I've had somebody in my office telling me really things I didn't want to know about them, mm-hmm. but they needed some help. They needed somebody to listen. And, you know, in this day and age, especially, you know, I, I've never had a job where I work nine to five, you know, it's 10, 12 hours a day. And if it's a startup, probably 14, 15. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's healthy. I'm not saying that's right, but that's the world that I lived in. And so people bring their problems. I mean, it's part of life and I'm not saying I'm going to solve them. I can't, but I can listen. You know, I can, I can give some uh, consolation. I can give some advice. Um, I can do what I can do. And I think especially today, you know, when you and I grew up that, that was, you know, work and personal life, those are supposed to be completely separate. Well, Mm -hmm. that's not the world we live in. We live in, you know, where I work, my wife works, we both work 10, 12 hours a day and work and home life just kind of become one. Um, And so I, I think if you want to be a good manager, if you want to be a good leader, you have to be vulnerable, you have to be willing to listen and you have to be willing to help. And it, it is shocking today where I, I shared with you that I went to some networking event and I was talking to somebody and I said, well, you know, what's going on at ABC Corp? And I said, oh, you don't want to come here. Everything's all left up. And I think what is sad is I think that's becoming the norm, you know, that we're squeezing our employees so much 
you know, yes, there's there, you know, if if you work for Uber or well, Uber's had their challenges, let's say Airbnb or Apple or, you know, most people would even consider Microsoft or Google. But those companies have issues, too. Um, so it's it's rarely as green on the other side of that fence as you think. So wherever you are, try to make an impact and be the difference. You know, I would advocate speaking up, but do it judiciously. I didn't do it judiciously. And that's not always so good for your career. I can tell you that from, for, from my experience. But that's who I am. So, you know, be who you are, believe in what you believe, but try to make an impact. And it's not all going to happen in a day. You know, one of the things I, I do some mentoring of some younger sales folks, and they think many of them, it's kind of funny when you talk to them, they kind of go, well, I'm just not making an impact. And mm. I'm like, you've been there for eight weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it can take years. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and it's, you have to realize that, you know, yes, it's nice. We all read the story about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, right? There, here's my, my favorite example. I, I tremendously admire Mark Zuckerberg. He's much smarter than I am. And what he's done is nothing short of phenomenal. And yet there's a lot of people that like to pick on him. And, you know, uh, there's a very well-known, uh, very smart writer named Sarah, uh, Kara Swisher. Uh, she, she runs Recode Decode and um, is part of the Vox Media Network. Anyway, very, very smart woman. I love her writing, but she's always picking on Mark Zuckerberg. And, you know, he's helped her every time he's uh, let her interview him. And she's always picking on him. Facebook, you know, people forget this, but Facebook was an eight-year overnight success. And what I mean by that is I think it was eight years before Peter Thiel, who was the first investor, put $500,000 into the company. Before that, they were scraping many, many times. Um, Mark Zuckerberg's parents, God bless them, they put over $100,000 into that business so they could continue to buy servers. You know, this was pre-Amazon, AWS, um, Microsoft Azure, where you actually had to go out and buy hardware. So to keep Facebook running, they had to keep buying all this hardware, and they kept running out of money. And, you know, I'm not, I, I'm a pretty nice guy, but if my kid comes to me after he dropped out of Harvard and wants $80,000 to buy hardware... Yeah. I'm going to be like, yeah, you know, I don't think so, kid. Some questions to ask. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and now it's all worked out for the best, but, you know, there's one of those every generation. You know, it was Bill Gates, the guys that started Google, you know, Steve Jobs and, and Wozniak. That doesn't come around very easily. And if you're going to do a startup, everybody forgets. This is not a one-year thing. It takes 10 years to build a company. And it took over eight years before Facebook got even to Peter Thiel. And that was a lot of hard work. And it's, you, you've got to understand that cha making a change, making a difference, you know, you, they get there and they you kind of look at the mountain and they see the top, but they kind of forget, well, there's this whole thing called a mountain in between that you have to climb. And so impact what you can within your circle of influence. And that's how you make change. And if we keep that in mind at all levels, whether you're an SDR, an entry-level salesperson, a sales development rep or a business development rep, an account executive, a sales manager, a director of sales, director of sales operations, VP of sales, you have to work within your current circle of influence and what you can impact. Yeah. And if you stay focused on that, that's how you make change. And it's not always the grandiose change, but all that little stuff. In fact, 
one of the things that I've been very fortunate and done pretty well is I'm pretty good at getting that team to all row that boat in the same direction by saying, listen, here's what our goals are, you know, as in my goals for this quarter. And I try to keep mm. it to three things, maybe four. That's it. And then I want them to tell me, build their objectives to build up to mine. So what can you do that's going to help us get to here? And I try and get CEOs that I work for or that I work with on a consultant basis to do that. You know, don't try to do everything. Pick three. You know, if you just pick three things to do every day, every quarter, every year, that's how you change the world mm -hmm. you know, one day at a time. So that's awesome. I think I think you hit on a lot of themes that I see, especially with younger crowds, where they everybody wants things overnight. Either that's the success, and there's the idea, especially down here in Orange County, where I'm based, where you're going to start a company and it's going to become a billion dollar unicorn in six to 12 months. And so why even think about the long-term employee health, you know, just work people 80 hours a week and surely we're going to sell for a billion next summer, which to your point that, you know, what is that one in a hundred, one in a million? I don't even know what the numbers are now for companies that make that or, it's people who want to come in and just do a job and do the job well. And you know, I can see totally people I've had that have reported to me that have said, you know, I want to make a difference. Okay. Well understand the business, right? You can't come in as a change agent if you don't know what needs to change and understand why things are the way they are because companies, people, products, we evolve in reaction to something happening. So if you don't know what's happened, you don't know what's going on, and you come in and start spouting off about what's broken and what needs to change, you're gonna have a really uphill battle with that. And that's, that's you're not gonna get the results, you're gonna be frustrated, you're gonna say this company is old, stodgy, and broken and can't be fixed. When in reality, just like we ask managers to do, people need to listen, they need to observe, they need to learn. And they need to come in with an open, with an open hand and say, okay, how do I help? What can we do? What's been done? And why won't this work? So that's something that I, I always try to tell people when I'm running teams that understand what's going on before you start spouting off. And I've been as guilty as you are in my career of just coming in as the hotshot guy and saying, well, obviously you're all just not very smart. Because obviously I see the solution here and there's obviously something wrong with you because this is how it should go. And I think with, with age, and wisdom, we grow out of that and we realize, huh, okay, maybe there's a reason why things are the way they are. Not that they should stay that way, but now let's think about solutions and changes in terms of what's happened before and what it's going to take to actually make some lasting change. So I want to just kind of change our direction just a little bit here to talk a bit about your background because I want to look at change in the context of what you've done. So you've been in sales, you've been in marketing, um, but your background was also and databases, operating systems. I mean, you've, you've kind of run the gamut here. But in your time in sales and marketing, which one did you prefer and, and why? And how did you end up in there from your background in tech? Oh, well, I guess I'm a jack of all trades and a master of none. Um, no, I've, I've been very fortunate. Uh, I started in sales. I came up kind of a traditional sales route. And then when, uh, when Kevin Riegelsberger, one of the founders of Platinum Software, recruited me away from Microsoft, um, he was very smart. He, he, he just, he kind of made it about me. And if there's one thing I can tell any company, if you want to, if you want to hire above your weight, um, develop a, a hiring process and accelerate it. 
because nobody, especially good people, hate looking for work. And so if you can develop a hiring process that um, has different tools, I'm a big fan of using a scorecard, uh, but having a, don't leave hiring to HR. Hiring is something that you have to build across your entire team and be excellent at it if you want to win and hire the right kind of team. And so what, what, so Regelsberger hired me into being a product manager. I'd never been a product manager. In fact, the old, one of the main reasons I did it, literally when I was in sales, I always kind of looked at marketing and I was like, what the hell do those clowns do? And, and there's an old Dilbert cartoon that described it perfectly. It, literally, it's a, it's a one frame cartoon and um, Dilbert, you know, an engineer gets, has to go do a stint in marketing. And then the next frame shows him walking into marketing and it's a door. It says marketing, two drink minimum. And that's, that's kind of how I always thought of marketing. You know? yeah. and, and God bless him. When I got into marketing, oh my God, I developed a tremendous amount of respect. Very few CEOs that I've ever worked for really understand marketing. Marketing is the most important lever that any company has if used properly. The problem is it's rarely, if ever, used properly. And I'll, I'll, I'll give a couple of examples. So I, I, I came in to be a product manager for an enterprise resource planning system. It was really a big accounting system then. We developed some of the other stuff later. Um, but I, I didn't know accounting. Uh, you know, I, I didn't know how to create a chart of accounts. Um, and yet I'm building this product. Now, thank God, I was essentially taking an enterprise product and kind of repackaging it for small to medium business. Um, and that, that became one of the flagship products of the company. Uh, and I, I learned a lot and I was drinking from the fire hose, but I learned, I, I forced myself to learn a lot about marketing and I developed a tremendous amount of respect for it. And because it was a turnaround, I, I was able to, if I did things right, you know, you got noticed and you got promoted. And so I went from being a product manager to senior product manager to director to director of inside sales, director of marketing, and then finally VP of marketing and business development. And that was over about six years, but I just, I, I forced myself to learn all the time and I consider myself a lifelong learner, but learning those things on how can marketing be a leverage point for the business. And if you do marketing right, sales gets a whole lot easier. Mm -hmm. And where, when you and I were coming up, you know, sales was important and marketing was kind of that other thing, you know, Oh yeah. The, those are the folks that make the brochures yeah. and run the webinar and, you know, put the box together that we ship the product in. One of the first, it wasn't one of the first things. It was one of the 10 things I did when I was at platinum. We were, we were selling a product that cost a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Okay. That's a lot of money. I called the warehouse and said, can I, you know, get, give me the, give me the product. Send me one over. I want to see what it looks like. Yeah, literally it was a brown box that you opened it up. And the first thing that you saw was something that said bug list. Jeez. Okay, that was the first thing. Now, this customer just spent a couple hundred thousand dollars with us. They're going to spend another hundred thousand dollars on an implementation. And that's the first thing you see is your customer experience. I mean, that's just screwed that's up. Terrible. That's terrible. So, so you know, I, I said, you know, we got to change this and, you know, it took some time, but we put it together. So it was actually a nice box. First thing that happened when you opened it up was, um, do you want to know who the most important person at Platinum Software is? You open it up and it says, you are. Please fill out this registration so we know how to get a hold of you and you know how to get a hold of us. You yeah. know, it's, 
the little things like that, you know, creating that experience that is pleasant. Um, it was a nice package. Everything was organized. The back in the day when you had floppy disks, there were floppy disks in this box. There's yeah. documentation in this one. There's implementation, who to call. And so it made sense. It was logical. But that's the kind of stuff when a company is growing fast that people forget about. And literally, they, they literally would just grow, grab these binders and throw them in a box and ship it to a customer. Yeah. And so forcing yourself to go through all those little things, that's where marketing can make a big difference. That's where marketing can, can become a lever point for you. And I would, I would argue that as a small company, you should invest as much in marketing as you are in sales because part of the reason, you know, you'd ask me, which do I prefer? I don't prefer either. In fact, I kind of go against the grain. I want to run both. You know, if I'm, mm -hmm. if, if one of the reasons my last job is chief revenue officer, I, I own both. And I like that because what happens is the buck stops here and sales can't say, well, marketing's given us crappy leads and marketing can't say, well, sales can't close anything we give them, you know, there's, there's one person responsible for both sides of that house and I can get them working in the same direction and, and making them work together. Um, that's, that's where it becomes important. That's where it can become a, a huge leverage point where they're working together, appreciating each other and understanding what each other does. And that's what most organizations really struggle with. Sometimes as startups, sometimes as large companies, you, you remember when, um, you and I were at Microsoft at different times, but you, you, we used to get all this crap from marketing when you were in outfield sales. You never read half of it because it wasn't valuable. Yeah. And they, they just weren't working together. And I'm, I'm, you know, hopefully they've improved that now. I have no idea. But in large companies, it becomes very challenging for those two organizations to have respect for each other and not just become two warring factions that are costing a lot of money and not delivering a tremendous amount of value to each other. Yeah, I saw that. I was more on the engineering side as a program manager, product manager at Microsoft, but we very rarely saw the marketing team. I mean, I think maybe we saw them when we released the product and then they were out there touting the features and we, as the engineering side of the house, would say, but that's not even what we built like to focus on. Like you guys picked out of the hundred things we built, you picked the three that we didn't even focus on. And then it would get out in the marketplace and it would just not sell. And then the question would come back and say, well, what went wrong? And everybody would say, oh, well, marketing didn't get it. Well, did we ever talk to marketing? Did they ever come and sit in our meeting? Did we sit in their meeting? Did we understand what was going on? And we just, we didn't have it. And to your point, that's a pretty expensive endeavor, right? Then you have all these engineers building something and then you can't market it. And then of course you can't sell it. And that's, that's, oh. I, yeah, both sides of the house are not talking to each other plus the sales team talking to the marketing team. And so you just have that, that breakdown of communication that's, that's going to cause some problems. I, I certainly hope they fixed it, but Microsoft for a long time was very guilty of what I call focus group marketing. You know, well, we did a focus group and they said this, so that's what we're going to market. Yeah, but that's mm. not what we built. Um, that's a lot of big companies get into that disease. And that's part of that is, is they've become a victim of their own success. They've made so much money that they're hiring all these people to do all these different functions. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a big believer, you know, Bezos says it best, you know, any project, if you've got more people than you can feed with a large pizza, it's too many people. Yeah. And, and I, I believe Amazon, one of the things I, you have to admire about Amazon, I, again, a lot of people like to poke fun and, 
you know, say this or say that. That is a very well-run company. And I, I did a, I'm going to repost this actually, but one of the things that has always impressed me, I looked at an interview recently from Jeff Bezos from about 12 years ago. That, and it's funny, you could tell it's 12 years ago because he still had hair. Um, but what was funny, it was, it was around uh, the, the whole battle between bricks and mortar and online and stuff. And this, this newscaster kept asking Jeff these questions about you know, brick and mortar versus online. And Jeff just kind of ignored him. He said, I, I, I'm not sure if you understand, we don't care. All we care about is the customer. And we want to deliver the best experience we possibly can for that customer. If you interviewed Jeff Bezos today, I guarantee you it would sound exactly the same. Yeah. Because if there's one thing that they've maintained is that maniacal focus on customer obsession. And that's why they're great. Um, in my, and, and when we started Novus RX in 2010, to the, and, and even up till I, I left the company, you know, I would do support calls often, you know, mm-hmm. and on weekends. You know, we had a physician once that was having a problem. And the only time that couldn't accommodate him was on a Saturday night. So I said, no problem. Well, you know, Saturday at seven o'clock, we'll, you know, call this number. So we're on the phone and, you know, we help him. And it was, he was using our free version. Mm-hmm. And this was a very senior guy at Duke University, you know, probably making about 700 grand a year. And he chose that particular time where we're helping him through this crisis, myself and one of the co-founders, who's a physician, um, to tell us of that we were charging too much for our software um, at $199 a year. Mm. And, and he was still using the free version. Um, and he had, he had screwed up his database by not following directions. Uh, but it didn't, you know, I, and I, it, it didn't bother me at all. But my co-founder, who I've never seen get upset, was really getting ticked off at the guy. Uh, but it was, it was being willing to do that call on a Saturday night. We did that all the time. Why? Because the customer needed it. And, and even though he hadn't paid us a dime yet, we still handheld him till we solved his problem. It took about an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, it, any company I've ever been at, it's that kind of stuff that has made just a big difference in, in the way that you handle the customer and the way that they remember you. And Amazon they have embodied that throughout their history. And I think it's one of the reasons they've been so successful. Yeah. So we just have a couple minutes left here, but one thing I did want to touch on is, is the results. Because I think a lot of companies struggle with marketing because they can't quantify success. Like how, okay, we put a bunch of money in, did it work? How do you know? Right? Because the sales team will say, well, we're just great salespeople. And the product team will say, well, we just built the best product in the world. So how do you quantify that? And do you have any examples from your background where you can say, yeah, we did this thing and it led to this result for yeah. marketing? Yeah, it's, so it's gotten a lot easier, but you, you really should try to quantify everything. You know, I'm, I'm Scotch-Irish, so I'm one of the cheapest clowns you'll ever meet on the planet. Um, and I spend the company's money like I spend my money. Um, so when I'm investing in marketing, you know, I'm trying to find leverage points. So, I, you know, paid search, um, basic organic search, you know, that's where I generally start. Um, and you can track very closely what's coming in. And we used to track this all in spreadsheets. So you don't need all these fancy CRM tools and mark, you know, Pardot and all the marketing management tools, but they're useful and, and they're next to free. So just use one. I don't care which one, just pick one and use it. But you want to track those things. Now we tend to get caught up in metrics and we always will. And sometimes the metrics 
aren't that accurate. And we think that they are. And, and that's okay. But you want to be able to try and track it down as best as you can. So where did that lead come from? I, you know, everybody gets into, well, is that a marketing qualified lead? Is that a sales qualified lead? Did that turn into a deal? That's really important. I don't care if you call it an MQL or an SQL, just define it. You know, if somebody raises their hand, that's a lead. You know, do they have budget? Do they have authority? Do they have a time frame? And you want to track all those leverage points as much as you can. But don't kid yourself. You know, uh, I read a lot of blog posts. I've never bought anything out of something I've read on a blog post. But you still got to have a blog. Yeah. Because you want to have good content to bring those people in. And so you're going to invest in a lot of those different things and you want to know which ones are working. But don't kid yourself. Just because something turned into a deal, it might have started at a blog post. It may not have, it may not have been because they filled out that gated content on your website to get the ebook. You know, and I'm a big fan of ebooks, but if you want to differentiate yourself, don't make them fill out the form. Remove the friction. Hmm. You know, a lot of them just want the data. They want the information. They may or may not buy from you ever, but remove the friction. There are times to have the gated content up there so that you can track and build your mailing list and all those things and do those things. But do track it. So, you know, I'm a big fan of finding high leverage points. So I'd rather invest in content. Um, and then when they come to us, we can, we can, you know, see them hit the website. We can see them engage, make an inbound phone call, fill out a form on the website. And then you can start to track how much did you, money did you spend and what did it cost at each one of those leverage points down to closing that deal. Mm-hmm. And, and that attribution is very important, but do realize at, at some level, there's just a level of ambiguity you can't track to, but, putting those metrics in place and those performance indicators in place. That's how you justify marketing, measure everything and test everything. So even though, you know, they've always done it this way, mm-hmm. try something different, spend at least 15% of your marketing budget doing testing, trying different things, seeing what works, finding new leverage points. Um, those are what I've done again and again that have paid off for the biggest returns for the company in general. That's awesome. And John, that's a great place for us to stop because it's, it's almost like we've come full circle in terms of testing, which means you're going to have some things that aren't going to work and they're going to fail, but that's okay. So you'll make a mistake. You'll try something. You'll figure out what's not working and you'll learn from it. So that's, that's a great way for us to, to bring this all back to a close. So John, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you so much for being a guest and very active participant on Smarter Change podcast today. Hassan, thank you. It's always a pleasure. The pleasure is mine. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and visit me on HassanArcher.com and LinkedIn. And if you have led meaningful change in your company or organization, please reach out to me. I'm always looking for interesting people with great stories to interview, and maybe I can get you in on a future episode. So thanks again, John, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.